This week I had the, uh, the pleasure of going to the Houses of Parliament for breakfast. They do an all-you-can-eat buffet on a... Th- oh, no. That's a, never mind, that's a joke. Um, I delivered that too quickly. I went to the Houses of Parliament for breakfast on a Tuesday morning of this week, and, uh, and I have to say, I totally love it. Every year they do something called a National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast. It's the most grand title for a prayer meeting you'll ever see. And, uh, and the idea is, they've been doing it for a, a while now, and the idea is that church leaders get an inv- invitation. I don't really know how you get an invitation, but I seem to get one every year. I think a small town like Sorridgeworth, maybe, maybe I just come up every year and they think we'd better invite, invite, that, invite that guy again. And the idea is you're meant to invite your MP and you go along with your MP and you all sit at tables of about eight with your MP and other church leaders and their MPs from all over the countries, uh, country, should I say. And so there's a, there's a few prayers, there's a welcome or two. John Burko, blessing, welcomed us. And then uh, the leader of the SNP stood up afterwards and said something, so that was quite funny, um, given their recent shouting match in Parliament. And then uh, the highlight was when we sang um, In Christ Alone. The Getty Band were there. And uh, we sang, this is in the Great Hall, and uh, we sang In Christ Alone, which had some of our MP friends slightly lost when the church leaders erupted in joy at the end of In Christ Alone, showing where our heart really remained, actually, as we clapped and I believe there was a few woo-hooings at the end. That may well have just been me, I don't remember. Um, But it was a wonderful moment, actually, of worshipping the King of Kings in the great hall where King Henry VIII ruled from all those years ago and where the seat of power is for this nation. Um, For whilst many people had their cameras out, and I guess it is... A little bit exciting to see someone you might see on the telly uh, uh, relatively close up. The highlight for me was a talk by a guy called Tim Keller. Tim Keller, if you don't know who he is, you really should. Uh, he's a, a Christian writer, he's a, a church leader over in New York City. And, uh, and he, he gave the main address. So you had all the, quite a lot of Parliament. Theresa May was there, I believe. She was at the front. I was well at the back. I was nowhere near Theresa's table, sadly. Um, but Tim Keller gave the address and the title of the talk that he'd been given was what difference can Christianity make to the 21st to 21st century Britain? What difference can Christianity make to 21st century Britain? And he basically started off by saying, goodness me, they've already done so much Christianity has. That's a bit like asking what else can you do for me? Because Christianity has done so much to Western civilization. And he spoke clearly about and well about the effect of Christianity and what it's had on shaping British culture and how our moral values of things like tolerance and self-sacrifice and love are a direct result of Christianity and its uncompromising influence on Western culture. He spoke of how when Christianity arrived on these shores, that message of being made in God's image and being loved by God unconditionally was one people just simply hadn't heard before and compelled lots and lots of people to enter a much more difficult life and yet follow Jesus Christ. He based his talk on Matthew chapter 5, as Ian has just read, but verse 13, the final one, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But that line, you are the salt of the earth. And Tim, uh, or Timothy, uh, as I call him, that's his name, sorry. It's been a very long week. You have to bear with me this morning. But Tim made two points that struck me and stuck with me. Uh, the first was just about salt and how salt has two different functions. In this analogy, obviously Christians 
our salt. When Jesus talks about you being the salt of the earth, it isn't a generic kind of engineering term, you know, salt of the earth guy. It's uh, actually God's people are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. God has put you where you are. God has put me where I am to make a difference, to change and affect situations and lives and surroundings. We're put there for a reason to make a difference, to be like salt. And he made the point that salt is used for two reasons. It's either used to bring out the flavor of something to make it taste better. When you have chips from Rumbles, we cover ours in salt. I know it's not very healthy. And then we cover it in vinegar. And then because the vinegar's mop, mop the salt up, we put a bit more salt on. Uh, wonderful. Best time on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Thursday. Anyway, and so we have that. Salt brings out the flavor. It makes something taste more wonderful, doesn't it? And he made the point that Christianity in the West and individual Christians have brought the very best out of culture. And actually in times of crisis, we see things and we say we're really proud of the way we've reacted to that. Britain has reacted really well or America has reacted really well or whatever other nation it may be. And we say, aren't we really good? And you think, yes, but those good bits, actually that flavor, that good flavor has come because of the effect of the preaching of the gospel and the following of biblical ethics in the West and Western Europe. But he also made the point that salt is used for another reason, and it's used as a preservative to prevent decay. He talked about how culturally we are going down in a downward spiral. That at the present, Christian's job, a Christian's job is to stop the decay of our nation. And we see that decay, don't we? Haven't you only got to turn the telly on and see just how bad society is becoming? Brokenness all over the place. Stabbings and shootings in every major city, but in London almost every day, somebody is stabbed or shot. And just last night, a 15-year-old boy was stabbed to death at a birthday party in Romford, a few miles down the road from where me and Andrea grew up. Stabbed at a birthday party in a community centre. His life snuffed out for what? A fight. 15 years old. That happens, everybody, every day. Every day in your capital city, in the boroughs that surround it, this happens every day. Every single day. And not just London, Manchester, Liverpool, and small communities, more and more and more. We see the use of drugs used liberally, culturally. Even William Hague, bless him, said this week, the fight on cannabis has been lost. And he's thrown his hands up and said, why don't we just legalise it? Can you imagine? That's not the sort of thing Britain ever says. We never say that, legalise drugs. We're not into that. We won't debate that, but I don't think that's a good idea. But there we are. I'll just stay that up the front. Look at our young people using those silver gas canisters and vaping. We've even had a letter from Leventhorpe about it this week. The government has announced a new position, a minister for loneliness, because people are more lonely than ever before. Suicide rates, depression, the poverty gap, holiday hunger, the use of food banks increase year on year on year because our society is going downhill. The porn industry is rife. And now we have this terrible problem of upskirting, if you've been listening to that. And hopefully that will become a criminal offence sooner rather than later. But when did we become a nation when it is all right to put your camera under a woman's skirt and take a photo? What have we become? Who are we? Our young people, we must pray for our youth. It is not like when we were young anymore. The average nine-year-old or even perhaps below has seen things sexually that people my age and above never did at their age, not even close. 
They're being shaped by morality that is no longer biblical. They have the right words and what sounds like wonderful advice, things like be yourself, do what makes you happy. Don't let others tell you who you are. And yet we leave them dangerously open to suggestion because our young people are asking, well, who am I? Who am I? Our young people hear only one voice, the one that shouts loudly through media and social media. And we will see the effect on their lives in years to come as we already are. Culture calls them to be themselves and it only provides them with two main options in the area of sexuality and gender. These are the only things our young people are talked to, to about. Culture calls them to be themselves and as Western culture begins to unravel, where is the church? What should the church do? Well, some would say, well, let's just shut the door. Let's pull up the drawbridge if we had a drawbridge. And let's just kind of hide and keep the mess out there. It's very tricky when the mess comes in here. We don't really know what to do with it. What do we do with it? Let's keep them out there and us in here. And so what, if the church is a little bit smaller, we'll just call ourselves persecuted. That'll make us all feel better about it. But let's shut the door and keep that out there. But Jesus, as I read the pages of the New Testament, seemed to spend hardly any time indoors. He seemed to spend most of his time going to where the most broken were, the most needy, the most lost, the most confused, the people with the most questions, and he preached forgiveness. He preached new life and the love of God, and it cost him everything, absolutely everything. You know, Christians this morning, brothers and sisters, our time has come. I read this week, John, Matthew chapter, not Matthew, Acts chapter 5, verse 20. And after the apostles have been arrested and then miraculously released from prison, they're told by an angel to go and stand in the temple courts to tell the people about this new life. We need to be a different voice in the 21st century. You and me are the salt of the earth. We need to be a preservative in our world and in our culture, not so that we can rebuild Christendom or return to some strange quasi-Victorian era where the church is king. We don't want those days back ever again. We just want a world where Christ is king and people know that new life under him. We need to go out and speak a different way. The people of this world need to rub shoulders with kingdom of God people people who live by a different ethic and for whom being themselves isn't about orientation, but it's about being rooted in the value of having been made in the image of God. That is the message our culture needs to hear, that you are special because of who made you, not for any other reason. The ideals that I grew up with were from a Judeo-Christian ethic and they're no longer taught in the way they once were. And if they are ever taught in one way, they're never taught as Christian ideals. Things like self-sacrifice and going the extra mile. Our culture has become slowly self-centered, not others-centered, and no longer God-centered. I was having a conversation with Hannah Marie this week, my daughter, about cameras. And I said to her, you know, when I was young, if you got to a mountain, you'd do this and you take a photo of the mountain and you put it in a little book and you look at it occasionally. I said, but then at some point in about 1992, I think it must have been, somebody thought, hang on a minute. And they began doing, and then they started doing things like this. And no, I won't do any, any more impressions. That's just weird, sorry. Um, that's an image you won't get out of your mind, isn't it? <laughs> 
Never catch Hugh Jackman doing that. Anyway, but we began to take photos of ourselves. And I've told you my most favourite story, but I'll tell you again because I've got time. When me and Andrew and the kids were in Yosemite Park, we stopped on the side of the road to take a photo of Half Dome, I think it is. And so we got out and we took our photo of the mountain. It's all very exciting. And this family got out of their car and they lined up in front of the, with the mountain behind them and they got the camera out. Um, yeah, sorry, so they're here, the mountain's there. And they got their camera out. I thought I could take a photo of the mountain. They turned it round and they all went like that. The mountain's there, there, there. And the mountain's not in the photo. And so in years to come, they're going to go, where were we again? But we're becoming less and less other person-centered and more self-centered. Everything's about clicks. Everything's about followers. Everything's about do people consider me a certain way? And that's the kind of culture people are growing up in. And so these nine kingdom attitudes that Enid read to us from Matthew chapter 5 that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, these nine attitudes that are blessed by God. In a different version it says, happy are the poor in spirit. Not just blessed, people are searching for happiness and that blessing, it doesn't come the way culture tells us. I read an article this week that was written in December 2017 that said Britain has become the most self-centered nation in Europe and we are the most miserable the two go hand in hand, don't they? The two go hand in hand, that's better. Um, but actually when we're other person-centered, when we're God-centered, misery does tend to vanish because peace is found in our creator and his love and his love alone. So these three chapters, these, sorry, these th- nine attitudes um, really summarize the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And what they're doing is summarizing what citizens of God's coming kingdom are meant to be like every single day and how we can actually make a difference in the world and the situation and the families that we live in. Verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what's Jesus saying here? What is spiritual poverty? Sounds a bit rough, doesn't it? I want to be spiritually rich. But what is spiritual poverty? It's about acknowledging before God that you have nothing to offer him to make yourself right with him. No matter your earthly status, spiritual poverty is about recognizing our lack of good in the sight of a perfect God, that we're not good enough ever to make ourselves good enough for his salvation. Spiritual poverty is about is saying that before God I have nothing of any worth that I can offer him to be saved. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what salvation is really about when Paul writes these words, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Spiritual poverty is about recognizing our sin and our individual brokenness and our absolute need of God. And when we do that, we can then receive a place in his family, his kingdom. And this attitude changes the world. Why? Because those who know their need of grace have a tendency to show it to other people. And those who think they're good enough tend to think nobody else is. Verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Like spiritual poverty, this is about the grasp of what sin is in our lives and an emotional, spiritual response to it. To experience a deep grief about our own sin also, but I think, to be mourning the brokenness of our world too. We will be comforted by the Holy Spirit who is called a comforter, by our own forgiveness and by the coming kingdom of God. 
But I think this is about godly mourning for where God isn't yet king, where his light doesn't shine in our own lives, in the light of the others, the light of other people. Blessed are those who mourn. One person put it this way. In this beatitude, Jesus praises those who can enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and not try to extract themselves from it. Our Christian history is littered with that stories of our sisters and brothers of hearing something and weeping over it, weeping over it and then going to help. I wonder this morning, are we the sort of people that mourn the brokenness that we see? Does the plight of our youth lead us to tears? Does the poverty gap break our heart? Does the fact that there are generations of people growing up not knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, the only way to be saved, does that bother us in the slightest? It should. And we should mourn. And we should do something. And we should make sacrifices like Jesus Christ did. And in verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Hang on a minute. Wow. Do you hear that? Blessed are the meek, inherit the earth. People say to me sometimes, have you got any goals in life? And uh, normally, because I'm a humble chap, I say, well, you know, just to do some good and then die. Um, but now I'm going to start saying, yeah, I want everything. I want the whole earth. <laughs> but delivered really humbly, obviously. But don't you want the whole earth? Isn't the whole earth God's? Didn't he make it by the power of his word in six days out of nothing? Isn't it his creation? Isn't it his possession? Isn't every soul loved by him enough to send his son? Isn't it all his? Then I want it all. I want every person, every, everything, every situation. I don't want people being stabbed in Romford. We want that light for Jesus Christ, don't we? That's what we want. Yeah, I want the whole earth. That's our goal. When people say, what's the vision of the church? And we say, change the world. Well, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. Of course it's not. It's ridiculous to say change nothing or something very achievable. I want a big vision. We want to knock buildings down. We want to build them up. We want to build people up. We want to change Sawbridgeworth and Hertfordshire and England and the UK and Europe and the world. Don't we? We want to inherit the whole earth. I want nothing less. But what is meekness? Meekness is about mildness. It's about gentleness in spirit. It's about humility. It's crucially that idea of having the right or the power to do something, but not doing it for the benefit of someone else. It's that idea that this is my turn, but I'm gonna let you go in front of me. It's my right to go next, but do you know what? You need it more. Or do you know what? You can just have it before me because that's the kind of person in Christ I am. Think of Jesus Christ as we are told to in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, where Paul writes these famous words. He says, You're, um, you should be, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We live in a world where so many people will step on so many people to go up and get to the top. 
where people love their rights and they're extremely offended if anyone gets in their way or dares disagree with what they feel is their right. We are becoming as a society more and more angry and we are becoming a nation that rants at people. If you've got a Facebook account or any form of social media, you already know the wrath of the majority if you dare to utter an opinion that doesn't fit with the current culture. You are absolutely annihilated. What are we becoming when we lose our tolerance so quickly in the name of tolerance? We have become an angry ranting people and in all these groups God needs people there to show a different way where we don't always have to do what's our right or privilege where we consider other people's needs greater than our own, where the power to do is often replaced with the love to serve. Humility is becoming extinct. So these nine beatitudes are both a promise and a challenge to the one who lives with them. The world is their reward. What a goal, what a thing to aim for. But to live them is difficult. This is Christ-likeness at its very highest. But if we truly want to flavour our society and stop decay, then we must take up the challenge to be like the one who is the light of the world and shine brighter still through his power and in his name forever and ever. Amen.